Please open your Bibles with me today to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to continue our study through this book of 1 Timothy. And currently in chapter 3, we're looking at the qualifications for leadership and service within the church. While you're turning to 1 Timothy, let me remind you of a, of a verse we often refer to. And it's something of a pattern for us as we model church after that first century church that God brought when he first poured out the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the passage says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We see a very simple pattern that the early church practiced in that first century. They, it was a place of study and learning. God's word was being taught, the apostles' doctrine. It was a place of fellowship, community, friendship, relationships, expressed in the breaking of bread. That would, of course, include meals together, just kind of enjoying company. But also, I think, the Lord's table, the, the breaking of bread in remembering of Christ. And we'll be doing that here this morning as well at the communion table. And then also, of course, a place of prayer, a place of prayer, even this morning as we worshiped, as we sang our prayers to the Lord, I just sensed that this offering was rising in his presence and the Lord was just among us, kind of drawing us close. This simple pattern of God's church gathering is the model that we're striving for even today. And these things are able to take place because we come together to serve one another. Church doesn't just kind of automatically happen. No, we come and look for ways to connect, look for ways to be of service. And God gives instruction, as, as we'll see here in 1 Timothy, on the character of that service. What, what should be happening in our lives as we gather together and serve one another, because when we do, God's household is strengthened. There is a spiritual life that comes to you individually when you make it a discipline to come, to be a part, to serve, to be connected to God's people. But not only is there a ministry that comes to you individually, there is a ministry to one another, and as we saw in First Timothy, there is a ministry even as a witness and a light to our generation. God wants to demonstrate his kingdom in the midst of our time through the life of his people, the gathering of his church. We see there in the book of Acts, as they gathered and participated in this simple pattern together, it says in verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What was the result of these early believers just coming together and having church, studying God's word, praying, fellowshipping? God was advancing his kingdom. People were getting saved. And we've seen that even in our own midst. We've seen God's kingdom advancing, even in dark and troubled times, even in challenging culture and society, God's kingdom is not threatened by society or culture. Jesus said concerning his church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And so I want you to sense that as we come together, this is part of my intention and I think the Lord's desire for us. As we study these passages together, you know, we're going to get right down into the details, a, a list, a checklist of quality and character that God is looking to form in us. But it's more than just making us better people. We have a mission together. We have an opportunity to advance, to see God's kingdom advance, not only in our lives, personally, but through our lives corporately. And I want you to write your name in the story. 
I want you to see your name listed in the book of Acts. If the book of Acts were to continue and be written all through history, we would want to see our church and our gatherings mentioned as a place where God brought people together from all walks and, and background and differences, but he formed a family that together were powerful because the Spirit of God was in their midst and the kingdom of God advances through his church. That's important to us because we are called to be that vessel of God, that influence of God in our time. Today, we're going to be looking at the fruit, the virtues that God wants to develop in our lives individually because that will enhance and bless our lives corporately. So far, we've looked at a number of these qualifications. We began last week uh, looking there in chapter 3, and we saw these qualifications for leadership, overseers, pastors, shepherds, elders. And let's just pick it up again. I'll start again in verse 1. We'll read through verse 7, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Take a look with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. As I mentioned last week, I, I, I itemized 16 qualities that the Apostle Paul lists for us. We looked at the first eight. We finish up last week on that exhortation, not given to wine. And now let's pick it up from there again in verse three. The next item on our checklist, the ninth item listed is not violent. This means literally no giver of blows. So I guess it's probably a good advice for pastors and spiritual leaders not to settle their disputes with fistfights. I think that's pretty practical. Can you imagine us out in the parking lot take, taking blows to one another? Sorry, brother, I don't agree with you. Let's take it outside. No, this is not the way things are to be settled in the Lord or in the church, not given to physical violence. But listen, it's not just a church. It's at home. It's at work. It's on the basketball court for some of us men. I can remember almost coming to blows just a few years back. Now, I don't play much basketball anymore. I'm getting a little too old for that. But boy, I was in a, just at a local gym, and, and this guy was just really having a hard time with me. I was covering him, and he was like, quit getting in my way and bumping into me, and really a mouthy guy. You know, and I, I tried to encourage him in the Lord. I said, quit being a crybaby. Oh, my goodness. I thought, you know, I just lit a fuse under this guy. And I'm telling you, I wanted to wrestle this guy to the ground so bad. And I had to just excuse myself. You know what? I just need to sit this game out. I mean, I just had to reel in. And Lord, what's wrong with me? Pastor Richard, arrested. You know, I could just see the headlines. Not violent. <laughs> Self-control, guys. Not greedy for money, number 10 on the list. Overly ambitious financially. We've seen some abuse in this in our generation, haven't we? We can all think of the kind of the TV evangelist personalities that seem to be all about money. And yet Paul says it right here in the first century church. Listen, don't get leaders that are after some financial gain. So much of the abuse comes from false teachers because they have false motives. And so ministry is not the place to pursue financial gain. Now, God will bless. God cares for his servants and his pastors, his ministry leaders. But it's not the place where you come to get rich. Ministry is not 
for this kind of pursuit. Be content, learning to trust the Lord, but not greedy for money. Number 11, gentle, not harsh or stern. Now, this contrasts a lot of what we see in the world today. So much of the world's understanding about leadership is being this strong, domineering, almost you know, uh, lording over type of leadership. We call that strong leadership. But Jesus would speak to his disciples and say, you know, that's the way leaders function in the world, but it shall not be so among you. The greatest leaders among you will become the greatest servants of all. Leadership is to be modeled in a gentle and humble way. Jesus himself modeling service, washing the disciples' feet. Jesus saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so this quality of gentle strength, gentle leadership, is something that the Holy Spirit has to kind of impart to us. And it goes against the kind of the intuitive way that the world thinks. We've got to recognize that God has a different way that he wants his leaders to lead. A couple of verses just to enforce this. James 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Paul would write to the Galatian church in Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, how? In a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You want to correct a brother? You want to help someone get back on track? You don't beat them back to the Lord. You gently restore them back to the Lord. Isn't that the way the Holy Spirit works in your life? Isn't that the way the Lord draws you back into relationship? Aren't you thankful he's patient? Aren't you thankful he's been gentle? Aren't you thankful he's not been harsh and judged us and given us what we deserved? But in this gentle and loving and caring way, God, not without compromising, God draws us back. And so he calls us for this kind of leadership as well. Number 12 on the list, not quarrelsome, not argumentative. You don't have to win every argument. You're not engaged in verbal battles. Some lives just seem to be always in controversy. They're always upset. They're always in a battle at work. They're always in a battle at home. They're always in some, you know, friction at church. And that, that disqualifies you from being an example and being a leader. Yeah, but I'm right. You may be right. But the scripture doesn't say, blessed are the right. Blessed are the peacemakers. We just read it. That, I love that passage from James. The wisdom from above, it's peaceable. It's gentle. Willing to yield. Wow. I don't want to yield. We don't want to yield. We're standing our ground. We're right. Willingness to yield. Allowing the Lord to fight our battles. We don't have to quarrel and fight everything through. Paul would say this further in 2 Timothy 2 and 24, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Number 13 on the list, not covetous. This, of course, can take many forms. It's that desire. It's that selfish ambition that we all have to wrestle with. And it, of course, it can be for money, it can be after a, a lust or a sexual desire that one can covet. It can even be for a recognition and position that people long for. And this is, this is a subtle one that sometimes sneaks into ministry because people want to be noticed in ministry. They want to serve. They want to be involved. They want to be helpful. But then there's this desire for position, for status. They want to be recognized. And that's a coveting, that's a selfish ambition, not a laying your life down, not serving the Lord, but actually what you can gain or glean personally from ministry. It creates all kinds of jealousies. How come he gets to, to, to lead the worship? I can sing, 
Well, how come she's in the choir with the solo? I could do that. How come he's an usher? I want all these little petty things. And it's all coming from a covetous spirit, a selfishness. And so that's not acceptable in leadership. That's not acceptable for ministry. We look on verses 4 and 5 in the text. Number 14 on our list of, of qualifications for overseers, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now that word rule in the New King James, I think it's better understood in the NIV manage his family well. Sometimes when we think of rule, we think of this kind of authoritative, stern dominance in the home. I'm the leader. I'm ruling my home. That's not the kind of leadership God's talking about. He's really talking about someone who manages his home well with dignity, with humility, with grace. Now, it does include, for those that are parents, a responsibility to train and raise up your children in the knowledge of God. Kids don't raise themselves. They have to be trained. They have to be admonished. They have to be encouraged. At times, they have to be disciplined. And so a leader of the church has to first demonstrate an ability to lead in his home. And sometimes people get this backwards because ministry can be very engaging. Ministry can be very demanding. And you start serving, and then there's more opportunity, responsibility, and pretty soon you are so busy in ministry, you're not taking care of your home. You're too busy, caught up in ministry, and your marriage is suffering. Your children don't know you. They don't see you. Ministry needs to be balanced, and Paul seems to give, look, first, make sure the home, that's your first ministry. Make sure that ministry is being well cared for, because that becomes the evidence that you will be a good leader and minister in the church. Now, children are not to be the center of the home. Christ is to be the center of the home. And maybe you've seen this in the market or you know, in your own family or in some relative. You've seen a child-centered home. You know what that looks like. And it's not the same as a Christ-centered home children that have a respect for the authority of Christ through their parents. Now, let me say this. You can do everything right, mom, dad, and your child can still go prodigal on you. There's no guarantee that raising your children in the Lord will automatically cause them to choose the Lord for their own path in life. It doesn't mean this passage should not be understood that if children who ultimately come into teenage and adult years and rebel and go prodigal, well, that means that the, the parents are disqualified from ministry. Not necessarily. Ultimately, did they manage that child well when they had the authority in their life, when they were under their rule at the home? Were they doing their best? Ultimately, children make their own decisions. And it can be very heartbreaking. It can be very difficult. And of course, you have to pray and you have to hope that God will restore. And so often he does. But it does mean that you have a responsibility to do your best while you can within the time that you have. And then ultimately pray that the Lord will draw the child's heart into personal relationship with himself. But there's a principle here. And the principle is this. Paul kind of elaborates on this a little bit. If you can't manage this, how can we trust you with this? And that's the principle we see in Scripture. Faithfulness in one area is what encourages opportunity in ministry in another area. Unfaithfulness here does not mean, well, I just need a different job or I need more responsibility. Then I'll really be faithful. That's not the way the Lord works. Listen to Jesus in Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Ministry, serving God, is a stewardship. Listen, it's a privilege. 
to be able to serve the King of Kings. It's an opportunity for your life to be engaged in something that matters forever. And that opportunity comes with responsibility. And there's this idea, look, be faithful where you are. Yeah, but I'm aspiring to this. Well, what do you have now that you can be faithful with? That is the best step you can take towards that which you believe the Lord may be ultimately calling to you, calling you to, excuse me. So faithfulness in little will lead to God entrusting more. Verse 6, 15 on our list, continuing to move through these. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. This is Paul giving Timothy very practical advice. Look, you want to raise people up into ministry, but not too much too fast. Not a novice, not a beginner, not someone just brand new to the faith. Yeah, but they're really gifted. Yeah, but they can really do things for the church. They're really helpful in this area. They have aptitude in this area, whether it's music or, or financial wisdom or leadership skills. And Paul says, be careful, because if you give someone too much too fast, the temptation will be that they will get caught up, tripped up, in pride, because ministry can be a very rewarding experience when God uses your life and you see, wow, look how the Lord is blessing. Look at the fruit that, that came from that opportunity I had. And the, tr- the danger is that you begin to think that it's you. Wow, I really am special. Wow, I'm really gifted. I mean, some people are gifted, but I'm super gifted. Look at the fruit. Look what's happening. And that pride, I'm telling you, that's the kiss of death for ministry. Pride will take you down so quickly. Listen to the, to the scripture. Lest he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Wasn't that Satan's fall? He, was, he held this great position. The scriptures give insight to his place in heaven as an angel, as maybe this angel that was seemingly kind of the worship leader of heaven. We don't know for sure, but in his description, there seems to be this musical worshipful gift that he had. And all of this glory that he was leading and towards the Lord, he began to want some of it for himself. And he tripped up in pride. Be careful. It's a wonderful thing to allow the Lord to use your life. But the church has a responsibility. Not too much, not too fast. Let the Lord pace things lest there be pride. Now, verse 7, the last thing on the, on the overseer list, verse six, uh, number 16 on our list, a good testimony. Verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Boy, it's one thing to be a good Christian at church. It's a whole nother thing to be a good Christian outside the church. Paul is saying, listen, just because they behave well here doesn't mean that they have a good reputation out there. Because true Christian character developed by the Holy Spirit in your relationship with God it, it doesn't know that kind of boundary. See, Jesus is the same in church and out of church. And the fruit that he produces in our lives will be consistent not only here, but out there. Paul is saying, listen, this guy may be great in church, but he doesn't pay his bills. He doesn't show up to work on time. He's a horrible boss and manager. He's just crude and rude. Who are you outside the church has some bearing on who you are inside the church. It should be the same. He should have a good testimony in the workplace, in your extended family relationships. I'd say even out in the the marketplace, the way you conduct yourself as a neighbor, the way you conduct yourself, you know, when you're at your child's soccer game. And I've been to some of those, and I've seen parents just out of control, and I've been tempted to be some, one of those myself and so angry at a, at a call that was wrong, you know, and stop my son from scoring that goal. And 
that ref, he's of the devil. And, you know, there's just this rising, right? So there's this uh, self-control has to be in all areas of life. And I would say in our citizenship as well. Listen, there's a lot going on in our nation. And there's a lot of spiritual, I see personally, a lot of spiritual winds blowing through. Easy to get caught up and, and angry and frustrated. Don't polarize yourself in the political realm. You stay centered in the spiritual realm. You be that light. I'm not saying not to be engaged. In fact, I'm saying be engaged, but be engaged for Christ. Be engaged for the gospel. And this plays out in our life outside the church. That becomes a qualification for service and ministry within the church. Well, let's look on today, and I want to finish up with the qualifications for the deacons. Now, the word deacons literally means servant. We say deacon, we could say servant. And as I mentioned last week, truly all of us as believers are called to be servants. No one is excluded. This is not the special class of Christian. This is all believers. Now, some believers will be given certain areas of responsibility within the church, within the ministry, and that does require a certain level of accountability and qualification, but all of, the, all of us should aspire to be a servant, and all of us should see these qualities as personal for us. Don't disconnect here. Now, this is for leaders and deacons. I'm not one of those. This is for all believers. Take a look with me now, verses 8 through uh, the next few verses. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." servants, deacons. We notice the list very similar to the qualifications for an overseer. That's why I say so many of these things really apply to all of us. It's not exclusive to certain class of Christians. All of these things should be prevalent in our lives because this is what the Holy Spirit longs to produce. Not able to, uh, this, the ability to teach is notably absent in this list for deacons. Again, that would be more for the overseer, shepherd, pastor. But we ought not to think that deacons cannot teach. It's just not a necessity for this, for some areas of service and ministry. And all of us are called. Maybe the first example we see in the New Testament of men being set aside as deacons or servants to a specific task is in Acts chapter 6. And I'll reference this verse. You don't need to turn to it. But remember the setting. The church was caring for a group of widows. They were providing kind of material support, food, and distribution. And within the church, because so many were getting saved, there were both Jewish widows and there were Greek or non-Jewish widows. And what, some, what was happening is that the Jewish widows were, get, were, were given preference. They were getting more of the distribution than the Greek widows. Already in the very early church, we have this little racial divide this little prejudice against the non-Jews. And so this complaint comes to the apostles. Hey, this isn't right. We're all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile. We're all to be one in Jesus. These, this service should be done, you know, honestly with integrity. And the apostles said, you know what? You're right. But we can't engage in that every day. We're very busy trying to teach the church and, and study the word and bring the, the New Testament to life. But here's what you guys can do. And we find the instruction in Acts 6, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, 
whom we may appoint over this business. Interesting. They're just going to be handing out food to widows, but these are the qualities we want you to find. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These are the kind of men that can serve in God's family, in God's house. We know one of them was Stephen. We know one of them was Philip. These men went on to have amazing ministries beyond just deacons, but this is where it began. Let's take a look at some of these qualities. And again, we'll move quickly because some of them are really very repetitive as to what we saw in the overseer list. But in verse eight, the first qualification for a deacon is that they be reverent. This word carries the idea that they're serious. They're not flippant. They're not goof-offs. They take ministry serious. They're not, well, I'll do it faithfully if I can, but if I don't show up, it's just church, you know, nobody, it's, you know, it's all volunteer. It doesn't matter. That's a flippant attitude. That's not reverent. This is God's house. Everything that God is doing amongst his people is of value. It's important. At whatever level of service God would entrust to me, I want to be faithful. That's the idea. Those who take their ministry serious. Now, serious doesn't mean without joy. It doesn't mean that there isn't a light and joyous heart. It just means there's an integrity in the way you approach it. Number two, not double-tongued. This has the idea of saying one thing to one person and saying something else to another person, double-tongued. When, you're, when they're with you, oh, that, you know, just love you so much. God bless you, brother. Oh, I just hate that guy. Do you know what this guy said to me? Do you understand? That's a double tongue, right? Saying one thing, and that's not appropriate for a servant of God. There needs to be an integrity and honesty in our communication. Not given to much wine. We talked about this in some detail last week. Not only is there the personal responsibility that we need to manage, but also the accountability of our example and witness and impact on others. One verse I'll give to you that I didn't give last week, Romans 14, 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Leaders, servants, take care for yourself and also take care for others. Number four, not greedy for money. We just covered that same principle applies for those that would serve as deacons. Can you imagine imagine an usher who's responsible for handling the money, counting the money, has this kind of little greed problem? That was Judas's problem, right? Remember? He cared for the finances in Jesus's ministry, and he was pilfering. So not greedy for money is an important trait. Moving on to the text, verse 9, the fifth uh, thing that we see, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. What this means generally is that those that serve in the Lord's community and house and church need to know the faith. They understand the gospel. They're not, you know, just still wondering what Jesus really did and who they are in Christ. This mystery of the faith. Paul uses this term throughout the New Testament because the New Testament was something of a new revelation when it was first being presented to the church. Before, some of the things that we know as the gospel were hidden in mystery. In the Old Testament, there were things about God's plan for salvation that had not yet been revealed until God accomplished them through Christ. That that God would send his son and that God would become flesh. This was not clearly understood. That, That the son would pay the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all men, not just a Jewish Messiah, but a savior for the world. This was clouded in mystery. It's in the Old Testament prophecies, but it was not completely discerned. God kept it in shadow that he might declare it in the gospel. And Paul is saying for a deacon or a servant in the ministry, they need to know the faith. They need to know who Jesus is, what he's done, who they are. Holding this mystery of faith with a pure conscience. It's not only knowing these truths, It's living these truths. It's affecting their conscience, their lifestyle, their conduct. These that serve serve the Lord need to know the Lord. They need to know the faith. 
and they need to be living it as the Lord brings it to life through them. Moving on, verse 10, he says that they should be tested and found blameless. Sometimes you just need time. Oh, but I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to go. Let me go. Let me do this. We want you to be faithful where you are first, or we want you to be tested just in fellowship. You know, some people want to serve and they want a leadership place, but they don't even faithfully come and attend the fellowship. Well, just make sure you're a part of our body before you start leading the body. Now, this is sometimes just gets down very practical. People come to church and they say, you know what, I'm making this my church. This they're newly attending and And we love that, of course. We want that. We desire that. I love it so much here. I want to get involved. How can I get involved? Well, how long have you been coming to the church? Well, this is my second Sunday, but I love it. I'm ready to serve. I want to get involved. That's a good thing. We encourage that. We want that stirring in the heart. But there's also a balance. We would say, well, listen, why don't you wait a little bit longer for two reasons? You love us now but you don't know us very well yet. Why don't you hang in for a few months and see if you still love us in a few months from now, making sure that God does confirm, yes, in fact, this is your home fellowship. This is where God is calling me. So there's you getting a chance to test us, but then also the body getting a chance to observe you. How do you live your life? How do you treat your wife or your husband? How are you with your kids? How do you, how, as we get to know you, there's this testing period. And then as your life becomes knowable and, and connected and accountable, this is what Paul is saying. As that is observed, found blameless, you're legit, you're sincere, please plug in, serve, get engaged. Verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, I'm reading from the New King James. And if you have that Bible, you'll notice in that verse 11, likewise, their wives, the there is italicized in that sentence. What that means is that the New King James translators or the original King James translators and then followed up by the New King James translators, they inserted that word to help make the sentence flow and be understandable. And quite often those words are inserted and they do that very thing. Rather than just kind of the the choppy Greek literal translation, we get a flow that makes sense to us. But those inserted words don't always fit. And I think this is one of those occasions where this is not the proper rendering or understanding of this passage. This seems to indicate that the wives of the deacons need to be well-behaved as well so that the deacons can be qualified for service. Their wives, we don't want the wives disqualifying the deacons. Now, that is true, right? Our spouses can disqualify if, if there's a big problem, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. And I like what the, um, how the NIV translates this, and I'll show it to you on the overhead. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. I think the Apostle Paul is saying those women in your fellowship, some may be wives, but it may may also just be single women, they also can serve as deacons, as ministry leaders, as ushers, as worship leaders, as all the ministry available to servants in the house of God. But they too must meet qualifications. And so I think that's the better rendering of this passage. It's speaking to those women who would also be deacons. We might call them deaconesses, but there was no Greek word for a deaconess. But we see Paul using this word in other places where he talks about women who served in the church. Most notably, a woman named Phoebe, a servant of the Lord, Paul says. That word for servant, deacon. Phoebe, a deacon for the Lord. So this seems to be additional qualifications for those women that would serve. And Paul is, is uh, being careful to include them as well. Reverence, same word that he used for the men. 
good examples, dignified, serious about ministry, not slanderers. Now, Paul said to the men, not double-tongued, this word slanderers, it means also the idea of gossip, not being gossips. And boy, we have to be careful with that, men and women. And what I've noticed in our culture, sometimes we're not gossips in conversation, but we are gossipers in our social media, in our texting, in our emails, in our Facebook pages. There's all kinds of gossip going on. Yeah, but I never said anything. No, but you, your thumbs were sure busy. You were gossiping. Okay, we have to be careful. Boy, be careful, men and women. Social media, so easy to get caught up and becomes, it can become a gossip, not slanderers. Number three, temperate. This means, as we've looked in verses ahead, sober in judgment, a balanced life, faithful in all things, kind of a general statement. Ladies, you too must be faithful at home, in work, in marriage, in family. You must be trustworthy with money. You must be tested and found blameless. He goes on in verse 12. He comes back to the men in general and very similar to the overseers, let deacons be the husbands of one wife. We talked about that last week. One woman, men, men that are faithful in their marriage, both in thought and deed, ruling their children and their own houses well, just like we mentioned for the overseers, managing their home, this moral character, this quality of Christ emerging in their life. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We'll close here today. Paul sums up this list. And if I could paraphrase, it's as if to say, you know what, Timothy, let the people know as they serve the Lord, they, there is great blessing to their life. They obtain good standing. And there is something about having a good standing in the body of Christ. You know, as you serve the Lord, people are watching. People are noticing. People see the integrity, the way you manage your life, the way you're given to, to the people of God. You know, most of the servants that serve here, hospitality, worship, these people are just giving of their heart, from the, their love for the Lord. I'm so blessed to see just the ministry happening with all the help and servants and people doing it with a joy. That's a good standing. It speaks to their character in Christ. This is not something they're doing out of obligation or begrudging. They want to serve the Lord. And as you give your, play, your heart to serve the Lord, there is blessing. You become an example, an inspiration to others. And there is this great boldness in your faith. Many of you have tasted this. I want to encourage all of you. There is something that happens in your own spiritual life of faith as you allow the Lord to engage and use your life for his kingdom, for his glory. It gives you this spiritual boldness, this confidence. You know, some of you are here today and you think, yeah, ministry serving like that, I don't really have time for that. I'm really busy in other areas of my life. And I understand that and there is a balance but I would encourage you that there is something here for you that those other areas of your life can never give. Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will have an eternal reward. There's nothing else you can give your time, life, or energy, or resource to that matters as much as the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you know, there's a lot of other things. Don't worry about all those other things. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things will be taken care of would encourage you to prioritize his kingdom. The, the other thing that oftentimes sometimes people struggle with is this sense that they have nothing to offer. You know, I'd like to serve, but I can't do that. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, I've, I've got my own issues. I don't think I'm really ready to be of any use. And, and so you just kind of sit on the sidelines and ministry and the church and that's for everybody else. I'm just a spectator. I'm here. I like it. It's good. It helps. I'm gone. And, you know, for many years I've shared, I, I felt that way. I felt somewhat like 
not really available to ministry. I want to encourage you, by God's grace, consider yourself in this story. Write yourself into this, because God has a place for each. God has something of significance, good works prepared for us all. And it's that first step of faith. It's that opening your life up. It's that giving of your time. It's that taking a step to give, to allow God's grace to flow through you. Once you taste it, nothing else compares. This is the boldness. God can use my life. It's not me, it's him. God's grace can affect not only who I am, but what I, what I do for him. God can make my life useful in his kingdom. Are you kidding me? And once you plug into that, once you tap that, there is this boldness that comes to your faith. Nothing else compares to allowing the Lord to use your life, even in small ways, behind the scene ways. God will reward. God will encourage. So many times, and we're closing here today, I want to close with a quote. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and prepare for communion. Come on, guys, as I just close with a quote here, but set it, let me set it up with you for just a moment. I want you to, to recognize that we are in this together. You're not spectators watching the ministry be performed by the professionals. We're in this thing together because when you're disconnected like that, it's just so easy to kind of to be honest, even become critical. Well, I don't know why they do that. Well, I don't know why this church doesn't do this. And you know, you're the, you're the expert, of course, but you're part of the problem. You are part of the, the body of Christ too. And I want to encourage you to get engaged, get involved, to see yourself in the story of what God is doing. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon and we'll close. Oh, says one person, if we had another minister, oh, if we had another kind of worship, oh, if we had a different sort of preaching, you do not need new ways or new people. You need life in what you have. If you want to move a train, you don't need a new engine or even 10 engines. You need to light a fire and get the steam up in the engine you now have. This is our, my hope for us as we study these things together. You're not distract, disconnected. You are engaged. God, light this fire in me. Lord, let us be a church where we're all come together to serve the kingdom and the purpose that you have, have for us as a people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the wisdom and instruction of your scripture. Amazing. Holy Spirit, you give this checklist, I mean, very detailed insight into the, the type of character you're wanting to develop in our lives. And Lord, as we look at it, I, I think all of us would say, God, that's who I want to be. That's what I do want my life to look like. Give me the grace. Oh, God, help me to be that person in and out of the church, in my home, in the workplace. God, use my life. I've come to you, not just to be saved, although I'm grateful, but oh Lord, also to be available. When the apostle Paul was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself. The apostle responded, oh Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, let that be the cry of our heart. And you've given us insight today, even in very practical ways that we can allow you to begin this work in our lives and ultimately through our lives. And as our heads are bowed here today, I do want to pray for anyone that may need to respond to the Lord. We're going to partake of the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate Jesus and what he's done for us. And as we do that, we want to do it with the right, sincere heart. And maybe there are some here today, you're not right with God. Maybe, maybe you've never come to fellowship with him. You've never received Christ. He's speaking to you. You want to receive him.
You need Him. You love Him. Maybe you're here today and you need to come back to Christ. You need to recommit your heart. You would just say honestly, I'm just not right with God. My life is completely disconnected. I've been disengaged. I'm just out on my own program and tangled in my own agenda. I'm not seeking first the kingdom. And God, I, I need to recommit my heart and life to you today. If that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. And just in a prayer, really prepare your heart, ready your heart to celebrate Jesus at his table. If you're here today and you need to get your life right with God through Christ and what he's done for you at the cross, nothing you can do, nothing you can bring, but a heart that says amen. If that's your heart today, I would ask you just to raise your hand and I will pray for you just before we partake of communion. Anybody here today, raise your hand high so I can see you very back. God bless you. I write a couple hands back, one on the aisle there. Lord bless you. Anyone else today? Lord, I need to get my life right with you. Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, forgive me. God, help me to seek first your kingdom. Anyone else, just before I pray for those that have responded. Lord, for these hearts responding to you today, I ask that you would meet them in the full measure of your grace. Oh God, your mercy is limitless. Your grace abounds beyond measure. Lord, we come to you with sincere hearts and we say, Jesus, please forgive me. Please fill my life with your spirit. Please put me on path to be available to you to fulfill your purpose in my life. Lord, may it begin here today at the cross. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me the promise and hope of eternal life. And thank you for giving me a purpose, a ministry, a place to serve, a place to be connected, even in your church. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.